It's May 8th, 1701, inside Newgate Prison, London. A turnkey unlocks the iron door to a filthy, dimly lit cell. Newgate has been the city's most notorious jail for over 600 years, and the appalling conditions here have barely improved since medieval times. Over the centuries, this prison has hosted some of the worst villains in British history, many of whom were ultimately hanged by the neck. But few of these criminals were as infamous as the man now being woken from his stone-hard, lice-ridden bed. Slowly, Captain William Kidd raises his head from a threadbare pillow. He blinks at the shaft of daylight pouring in through the barred window and curses. This is a morning he has been dreading. Once the turnkey has ensured that the prisoner has been washed, dressed and made presentable, he shackles his wrists tight. Then, Kidd is led through Newgate's corridors and down into its subterranean passages towards the Old Bailey, London's largest courthouse. As he walks through the long, dank foot tunnel, the 47-year-old seethes at the hypocrisy of the charge against him. Years earlier, he was lauded as a national hero for his success as a privateer. The British authorities encouraged him to plunder foreign ships, as long as he enriched his own country in the process. But now, the political tide has turned against him, and he is about to face trial for piracy. Emerging from the tunnel into the light of the courthouse, Kidd is surprised by how packed the old Bailey is. Spectators fill the seats above him to see the famous pirate for themselves. From the audience, he can hear jeering as he is led up to the dock. Kidd stares up at the judges and lawyers in their black robes and powdered wigs. He knows that the High Court of the Admiralty is prejudiced against him. They need to demonstrate how intolerant Britain now is on piracy. And to this end, he has been cast as their scapegoat. But William Kidd has never been one to buckle under adversity. And he still has one chance yet of sparing himself the death penalty. When asked by the clerk of the court to raise his hand, Kidd refuses to plead either guilty or not guilty. Instead, in his Scottish accent, he insists that the proceedings must be postponed. My lord, I want to put off my trial as long as I can, so I can get my evidence ready. Furious, the judge demands to know his meaning. Kidd explains that he must send for some letters of Mark that he is certain will exonerate him. These are passes that were granted to him by the government, giving him full permission to attack and rob foreign vessels with impunity. I cannot plead until they are delivered to me. My justification depends on them. The court is furious 
and accuses him of stalling for time. But Kidd is sure that given these papers, he can demonstrate that all his activities at sea were officially sanctioned by the Crown. However, until this very morning, Kidd thought that piracy would be the only accusation against which he must defend himself. But now, he learns there is another. When the charges are read out against him, Kidd realizes that he is also on trial for murder and that the alleged victim was a member of his own crew. Kidd turns to his defense lawyer in shock. They are not prepared for this. Everyone knows that if he is found guilty of murder, he will surely hang, regardless of any letters of mark that might appear. After some desperate conferring with his counsel, Kidd is once again asked how he will plead. Raising his hand in a proud manner, Captain Kidd speaks loudly enough for everyone in the court to hear. Not guilty. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Captain Kidd will become one of the most highly publicized piracy cases ever recorded. As a result, Kidd's story will become synonymous with the golden age of pirates. It will inspire generations of literature on the subject, including Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island and the myth of pirates burying their treasure on remote islands. But how did Kidd come to be such a vilified figure? When just over a decade before, he enjoyed a reputation as one of Britain's most successful privateers. His path towards Newgate Prison starts 12 years before. It's December 1689, and a 20-gun ship named the Blessed William sails confidently across the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean. She is traveling at full sail towards the French-colonized island of Marie-Galante, once there, her crew plan to attack and loot the town, and they will do it under the orders of the English government. On board are a salt-hardened crew of 90 buccaneers, 
Their old clothes are badly worn, and their hair wild from having spent so much time at sea. Even under wide-brimmed hats, many of their faces are burnt from intense sun exposure. Most of these ragged misfits hail from the British Isles, although some French and Dutchmen also make up the numbers. War between Britain and France has just erupted, but no one in this crew is greatly patriotic. Coin is their only master. Plunder is their only unifying interest. And that is exactly what they expect to find in Marie Galante. Officially, the Blessed William has been named to celebrate the new King of England, William III, commonly known as William of Orange, due to his Dutch origins. But every man aboard knows that the name really refers to their captain, the brash and daring Scotsman, William Kidd. Kidd renamed this vessel earlier in the year when he took command, an opportunity he had long been waiting for, and the outbreak of war provided just the excuse he needed. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. Captain William Kidd was born in Dundee, Scotland in approximately 1654 and would grow up to become a privateer for the English. In terms of what his life was like before he became a privateer, little is actually known about this. It's believed that he was very likely apprenticed as a young man to a sailor or perhaps a privateer. And the only reason why we can speculate to this is because records about his professional life don't exist until he starts sailing under Captain Jean Fantine in 1689. Sometime earlier in the year, Kidd finds himself in a multinational crew aboard a French pirate ship under a French commander, Jean Fantine. As news of the war reaches them, tensions amongst the crew start to simmer. Not for love of country, but whose flag they should sail under. War means legal piracy and legitimate plunder, but a side must be chosen. Kidd senses an opportunity. With support for Fantan wavering, Kidd suggests that a more ambitious leader is needed. A mutiny must be staged and a new captain installed. No doubt the British crewmen rally behind him. And who better to lead them, Kidd argues, than himself. And so Kidd will ultimately become captain of this ship after renaming it the Blessed William. And this is what's going to set off kind of Kidd's career going into privateering. Since then, the Blessed William has established herself as the most successful privateering ship in the Caribbean, looting from French ships and delivering the plunder to the English government. Well, some of the plunder. Kidd and the crew have been keeping their share, making them all richer in the process. It's December 30th, 1689. Cannonballs batter the small island of Marie-Galante. Kidd's warship, the Blessed William, has arrived, backed by a few smaller privateering ships along for the ride. First, the French vessels defending the island are destroyed by the assault. Then the military outposts are decimated by cannon fire. Over the next five days, Kidd's privateers tear through the island, slaughtering whoever challenges them, chasing the French soldiers into the hills, destroying the town, 
and occupying the sugar plantations. As the carnage nears its end, Kid strides barefoot along the beaches, delighted by how much plunder this ransacked island is yielding. He grins, watching his lads hauling trunks of looted jewelry onto wooden boats and rowing them back to the Blessed William anchored in the bay. Under his command, they managed to successfully attack the French island Marie Galant, and they raided the one city there, and they made off with about 2,000 pounds of sterling silver in goods. And so this kind of really helped solidify his position as being the rightful captain for the Blessed William. This act of wanton terror may feel like unashamed piracy to the people of Marie Galant, but their actions are sanctioned by the governor of a nearby British colony as part of the war against France. In return for victory, Kidd was promised that on this occasion, he and his crew could take their pay from the French, meaning they keep all the loot. Kidd's men, giddy with their good fortune, show him the silver they are still finding hidden in every home. There's more here than he had ever dreamed of. Over the following year, Kidd continues to prosper as a privateer. The Blessed William gains even more celebrity soon afterwards, when it captures an enemy privateer off the coast of New England, again demonstrating Kidd's leadership. In 1691, Captain Kidd sails the Blessed William into harbor in New York. He is met with a rapturous reception by the people there. Greeted as a great war hero, Kidd immediately sets about ingratiating himself with the most influential figures in society. Most prominent among these is a man who will become one of the key players in Kidd's story. Richard Coote, the first Earl of Belmont. During Kidd's time as a privateer, he would develop a relationship with Richard Coote, first Earl of Bellamont, who would eventually become governor of both New York and Massachusetts. And this was a good relationship for the both of them. So by the time Kidd came to New York, Bellamont already knew who Kidd was because Kidd had developed a good reputation as a privateer and a pirate hunter. And he himself had a lot of ambitions of being a really great governor for New York and Massachusetts, you know, defend these colonies from pirates. And he sees something in Kidd that makes him think, here's a person who I can get to really kind of protect these colonies and help elevate my status. And so he becomes one of Kidd's main financiers. Kidd, on the other hand, also sees the benefits of being friends with Lord Bellamont here, because here is a very powerful political figure who is able to finance him, which is going to give Kidd his own great social and political status. And also, it could give Kidd some leeway in terms of when he toes the line between pirate and privateer, because he was already known to kind of toe that line a bit too dangerously. During his time in New York, William Kidd is seen as an extremely eligible bachelor. He hosts high society parties on the deck of the Blessed William, dresses fashionably, and is introduced to anyone who matters. And he's successful enough to secure the hand of one of New York's wealthiest young women. Sarah Bradley Cox Ort is still in her early 20s, but she's been married twice before. She inherited a fortune from her first husband who drowned at sea some years earlier. Whether or not Kidd is attracted to Sarah for her beauty, charm, or her money, we can never be sure. 
but as soon as he meets her, he immediately makes his intentions clear. He wishes to make her his wife. However, there is a hitch. Sarah is still married to her second husband, another wealthy but much older man named John Oort. However, Oort is sick, and his health is failing fast. Kid's good luck continues when Oort passes away in the early months of 1691. Hardly grief-stricken, the newly widowed Sarah applies for a marriage license to wed Kid just two days after John's death. On May 16, 1691, William Kidd and Sarah tie the knot. For a brazen social climber like Kidd, this is the perfect union. After all, Sarah brings with her a sizable estate to the marriage via two dead husbands. Moreover, through this high-status marriage, he feels he has ascended to an untouchable level in society. It is late on a dry autumn evening in New York City, 1695. William Kidd strolls alone through dimly lit streets. He has ventured far from his fine house in Pearl Street, where he lives with his wife and family. Since marrying, he has become a respectable member of the New York bourgeoisie. His affluent lifestyle here is a far cry from his humble upbringing in Dundee. And yet, his thoughts are as restless as his feet. Often on nights like these, he finds himself heading towards the dockyard, where he can gaze at the great ships. Nearby, there are some taverns, frequented by some former crewmates. He steps through the doors of one smoky establishment and scans for familiar faces. He is pleased to spot two men, Burgess and Brown, who once sailed under him on the Blessed William. They are laughing raucously and getting drunk on rum. Seeing their former captain approach, the men greet him heartily and offer a drink. They tease him about having gone soft. They've heard that he married a wealthy woman and congratulate him on his good fortune. In turn, Kid congratulates them. He knows that they have been making their own fortunes, like so many quote-unquote privateers, through blatant piracy on the Indian Ocean and is keen to learn more. Over the next few hours, Kid is told of their piratical ventures in places such as Madagascar and the Red Sea. Their vivid descriptions of looting trade ships reminds him of how exciting his former life was. Kid confides that he has grown disenchanted with his respectable life. Perhaps it is the rum talking, he admits, but he misses the thrill of the chase and life at sea. Little does he know, he is about to get his chance. His good friend and financier, Lord Bellamont, has just become the governor of New York, and he is about to present Kid with a golden opportunity. And in a way, it's an offer he can't refuse. Captain Kidd went back to a life of privateering because the governor of New York and Massachusetts, Lord Bellamont, he is the one who went to Kidd specifically to ask him to go back into privateering to capture pirates in the East Indies and go after French ships. 
And because these orders came from the crown, a refusal to do this would have been an insult to the country and it actually would have been very, very unseemly to do so. So effectively, Kidd didn't really have a choice. He had to go back into privateering. In truth, Kidd is excited to be leaving on this new expedition. Thanks to his friend Lord Bellamont, the commission to catch these rogue pirates is highly lucrative. But it also provokes his adventurous spirit that has been lying dormant for too long. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. The commission itself is explicitly predicated on the idea that because of the activities of English pirates who had plundered shipping in the Indian Ocean, Kidd's commission was explicitly aimed at hunting down these pirates, which wasn't unheard of, but was a little unusual at the time, and particularly in the middle of a war with France, when obviously most commissions were empowering privateers to go after French merchants or other French privateers. The authorities have been forced to act. Piracy in the Indian Ocean has become too big a problem to allow it to continue. This has been causing diplomatic strain between England and India. The Mughal Emperor has threatened to cease all trade if any more of their ships are attacked, an outcome which could ruin the East India Trading Company. Little does Kidd know that around the same time as he prepares to depart, another English pirate, Henry Avery, soon to be known as the King of Pirates, has just attacked the Mughal Emperor's own ship. Kidd's principal mission is to catch those pirates already known to be operating in the East Indies and shut down their activities. Also, according to Lord Bellamont, he must seize whatever spoils the pirates have already taken and bring it back to New York as a prize. Captain Kidd has been given a commission to be a pirate hunter, to go after pirates over in the East Indies and the Red Sea. And the pirates he's been sent to capture are Thomas Tew, John Ireland, Thomas Wake, and William Mays, along with many different others. He's also asked to target enemy French ships. So Captain Kidd is giving a privateering commission called a Letter of Mark, which details the locations he's supposed to go to, that he's supposed to capture French ships, and also to capture these other specific pirates. But before leaving on his expedition, Kidd must return to London, where a brand new ship is being fitted out for him. It's a bright February morning in London, 1696. Captain Kidd stands on the deck of the Adventure Galley as she slips out of Deadford Dockyard and into the River Thames. The Adventure Galley is a newly built 34-gun ship and holds a crew of over 150 men, personally hand-picked by Kidd himself for a maiden voyage. As he inhales the cold air, Kidd once again feels untouchable. The letter of Mark locked inside his cabin desk is personally signed by King William III and grants him full authorization as a privateer. The situation has made Kidd arrogant, though. And this arrogance has spread throughout his crew. Further downriver, the Adventure Galley passes a Royal Navy yacht. Usually, custom dictates that a privateer vessel must salute the naval ship by lowering their flag in a show of deference, otherwise known as dipping the colors. And yet, the captain of the naval yacht registers no such deference 
from Kidd's ship. And so he orders his crew to fire a warning shot across the bows of the adventure galley. But instead of compelling Kidd's ship to respond in a more respectful manner, it has quite the opposite effect. The grinning privateers instead line up on the deck as it passes. They then turn their backs on the royal ship and one by one they drop their breeches, bend over and begin slapping their backsides. The Royal Navy captain is astounded by this vulgar display. He can hear their mocking laughter as the ship passes by. He burns with anger, knowing that the adventure galley crew would not behave in such a way without encouragement from their captain. The consequences for the insult are immediate. The naval captain insists that the adventure galley be boarded at once. Most of Kidd's crew are punished and pressed into naval service, delaying Kidd's expedition and leaving him severely short-handed. The adventure galley must now sail back to New York to pick up a replacement crew. Captain Kidd's reaction to this inconvenience is not recorded, but it should provide a reminder that he isn't quite as untouchable as he thinks he is. When Kidd arrived in New York to recruit men as privateers onto his ship, he knew this was a good opportunity to kind of create a brand new crew that could really get into the life of privateering in a way that perhaps his previous crew could not. So he's looking for specific type of men here. For someone to have a really successful privateering ship, you're going to need men who are going to be able to be good fighters, who are going to be willing to get into dangerous situations, and those who are willing to be ruthless if needed. So he's going to be looking for people with a lot of this experience. And these are people who could be ex-criminals, people who maybe had even been pirates at some point. Instead of going for very kind of well-to-do, respected sailors, he's going for more hardened people, people who are more familiar with the life of crime, people who aren't afraid of it, and people who are going to go into robbing ships with gusto. In January 1697, with the Nine Years' War still raging, Kidd and his new crew of treasure-hungry privateers finally passed the southernmost tip of Africa and into the Indian Ocean eight months after leaving London. They set about raiding French ships, as their commission allows. But after some initial successes, the adventure galley goes for months without tracking down the sort of high-value ships that will make this expedition financially worthwhile. This places Kidd in an extremely precarious position. He gets this patronage, and the deal includes some really important riders, one of which is Kidd stakes a 20,000 pound bond that he will deliver on this commission. So just bear that in mind when it comes to Kidd's later behavior. He has a enormous stake financially and politically in this voyage somehow succeeding. It's important to appreciate the multitude of pressures that define Kidd's position as he sails into the Indian Ocean. He has hanging over his head this 20,000 pound bond, which says if he cannot pull off something that can be legitimized in some way, he will be financially ruined. He spent years building up 
a fairly respectable, legitimate life. He has a wife and a child in New York, so for him, these are very high-stakes matters. Thomas Tew, the infamous privateer-turned-pirate from Rhode Island, is chief among those who Kidd has been commissioned to capture. But as the adventure galley ventures further into the Indian Ocean, Kidd finds that his trail has gone cold. Tew has effectively vanished. Worse is to follow, as they reach the island of Grand Comore, an outbreak of cholera spreads through the ship, killing a third of his crew. Those who survive become increasingly unhappy with their captain. When they signed up for this voyage, Kidd promised them riches, he promised them victories, but up until now, they have only met with sickness and defeat. Things are getting desperate. What happens if your crew becomes too dissatisfied? Best case scenario, you might get abandoned, right? Worst case scenario, you might just never come back. So he's dealing with a lot, right? I like to imagine Kid is a very stressed guy. You know, he's got money troubles, he's got political tensions that he's trying to navigate. He's got a rambunctious crew that want to get paid and aren't particularly concerned about the finer political ramifications of what they're doing. And on top of all of that, he still has to, you know, do the daily managing of running a ship, etc. So there are a lot of pressures on Kid to fulfill responsibilities, many of which are in direct contradiction to each other. So he's a complicated guy. With his crew on the edge of mutiny, Kidd needs to reverse his fortunes fast. Despite being only authorized to attack French ships, he begins to set his sights on different prey. Over the following months, the adventure galley attempts to raid vessels that he is not authorized to target, including one New York privateer. The crew are soon demanding to raid any ship they come across. Kidd knows how risky it is for him to cross the line from privateering into piracy in this way. After all, he is supposed to be hunting Thomas Tew, who committed the same crime. Tew's voyage was also originally financed by a previous governor of New York. The similarities are striking. On the other hand, Kidd also knows that those privateers who turned pirate in the Red Sea, like Tew and Henry Avery, also made a fortune for themselves and their crews. The temptation to seize that sort of plunder for himself becomes increasingly hard to resist. It is October 30th, 1697. Somewhere out on the Indian Ocean. On board the adventure galley, crewman William Moore studies the distant horizon through a spyglass. He's on the lookout for prey. Moore is the ship's gunner, and like many other in Kid's crew, he has begun harboring a deep resentment. Over the past year, many of his crewmates have either died of cholera or abandoned ship. And in recent weeks, the adventure galley has tried to raid two larger ships and failed on both occasions. As far as Moore is concerned, the fault for all this lies with Captain Kidd. The raids were poorly planned, and their numbers too low. Not only that, but now supplies are running short. With an old rag, Moore wipes the sweat from his forehead 
he considers what needs to happen. The blistering heat is making everyone feel mutinous, and if they do not seize a ship soon, it will be over for Kid. More will lead the mutiny if no one else has the courage to. Just then, he sees a ship appear upon the horizon. Adjusting the telescope, he identifies a Dutch flag. It is bound to be a rich trading vessel, he thinks. Moore rings a bell, summoning everyone onto deck. The last man to emerge from below is their captain. He asks Moore if the ship is another privateering vessel. Moore spits. What does it matter? Standing in the center of his desperate crew, Kidd reminds them that they cannot attack other privateers, especially Dutch ones. Do not forget, he tells them, our own King William of Orange is a Dutchman too. To attack this ship would be a clear act of piracy. The crew are outraged. Moore steps towards their captain and stares him in the eye. He is the largest, most belligerent man on the ship. Piracy be damned, he shouts. The crew cheers in agreement. Kid holds the big man's eye. He knows that if he shows weakness now, he's done for. These men respect only strength. Get back to your post, he seethes, you lazy dog. But the furious Moor doesn't back down. Instead, he prods his captain in the chest. If I'm a lousy dog, you've made me so. The crew explodes with raucous approval. For weeks, Kid has been anticipating a mutiny. He only now realizes it has already begun. Suddenly, more lunges for Kid, but the Sprite Captain dodges the blow and reaches for the nearest weapon. He grabs a bucket from the floor and swings it at his attacker. The heavy, iron-bound bucket connects sharply with the side of Moore's head. Everyone on board hears the crack of the impact. They watch in horror as the huge man collapses to the floor, blood pooling around him and over the deck. Immediately, Kid summons the ship's surgeon. Moore is taken below deck to the infirmary. Meanwhile, the Dutch ship disappears over the horizon. The following morning, Kid is informed that Moore has died of his injury. He gathers the men together on deck to break the news. He insists that he acted in self-defense and so is not guilty of murder. Besides, he has good friends in England who will protect him from any repercussions. As he stands confidently in front of his crew, in his heart, Kid must harbor some doubts. So during this time period, privateering captains did have some leeway in terms of punishing their crew, but killing the crew was something that would never ever be accepted. As we're going to find out later in the trial, his crewmates were very angry about the fact that Kid killed another crew member. And this is probably why many of them would end up speaking out against him in his trial. Kid tried to deny the entire time that he had injured William Moore, initially saying, no, I did not hit him, and then saying it was an accident and he had no intentions of killing him. 
The surgeon knew once William Moore was brought in that this was going to be a fatal injury. And the surgeon suspected that Kidd probably knew that, but was denying it. So the crew was pretty much already really suspicious of Kidd's motives, especially as they'd already been unhappy with him for quite some time. With this shocking display of violence, Captain Kidd has quelled the mutiny that has been rising amongst his crew. He has bought himself some time, time to think. He hopes time to turn their fortunes around. Little does he know, his troubles are only just beginning. Next week on Real Pirates. Under Captain Kidd's command, the adventure galley finally raids a ship worth taking. And this one has a fantastic fortune of plunder on board. However, the beleaguered Captain Kidd soon learns that his prize is not what it seems. And once again, his crew threaten to mutiny. Meanwhile, Political tides begin to turn, and Captain Kidd will quickly go from pirate hunter to hunted pirate. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by James Benmore, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm-hmm.